The first recorded words of Jesus in John's Gospel, Jesus asks a question. He says, what do you want? What are you seeking? If you were to ask any Australian, an ordinary Australian, what do they want? What are they seeking? What might they say? I think for many of us here in Australia, what we want, what we're seeking is really just the good life. We want happiness, we want fulfilment, and we want contentment. But how do we find these things? Because they're pretty elusive. Where do you find happiness, contentment, and fulfilment? Well, there's the big three, if you like. Wealth, fame or success, and love and relationships. Let's take wealth, for example, as a place where you might find contentment, fulfilment, fulfilment and happiness. Wealth for pretty well all of the last century, the 20th century, was tied to happiness in people's minds. If we could increase people's wealth, we could also, correspondingly, the thinking was, increase their happiness. But what we've realised really in the last 20 years is this doesn't always work. In fact, economists have had to come up with a measure apart from gross domestic product, apart from how much a country is worth in terms of dollar, dollars and cents, this is not necessarily an indicator of those who live in that country and their well-being, their happiness. And so economists now uh, and uh, happiness scientists have happiness indexes in which to measure countries and the people in people the people in countries their well-being. One article that appeared in the magazine The Economist a little while ago said this: Capitalism is adept at turning luxuries into necessities, bringing to the masses what the elite have always enjoyed, but people have come to take for granted what they once coveted from afar. The frills we thought we could never have are essentials now that we can't do without. See what the writer is saying. They're saying that we we want more stuff. In fact, the stuff that we thought we couldn't have 50 years ago, we do have now, but it hasn't made us any happier. What about fame and success? Fifteen years ago, surprisingly, I know some sports fans over there, Boris Becker released his autobiography and it was scandalous because there Boris Becker was honest enough to admit that at the height of his tennis career, when he was at his very peak, he was at, in fact, his emotional lowest, his psychological lowest. He was falling apart as a man. More recently, one of my fans... Uh, I'm a fan of Russell Brand in his, we can't really call it an autobiography, it's called his Bookie Wookie. He says this, he says, drugs and alcohol aren't my problem. Reality is, drugs and alcohol are my solution. Very successful guy, comedian, actor, but it hasn't brought him the happiness and that he so desired. What about love and relationships? Well, we all know that Relationships can be immensely satisfying and yet the very satisfaction that relationships can bring can also bring a level of pain, of real pain, of hurt. Those that we love most are most capable of hurting us. Uh, What is love apparently is one of the most common phrases typed into Google. 
You see, we're after, as Australians, happiness. We want fulfilment, contentment. We'll try wealth, but that doesn't quite work. We'll try success, but for those who are massively successful, we hear that it's not all all it's cracked up to be, and we know that love and relationships don't bring us everything we want, so where do we find contentment? Where do we find fulfilment? Where do we find happiness? Well, Peter's answer is in this little section that we read just earlier. It's a very difficult section of the Bible, but I don't want its difficulty to, in some ways, replace the wonder that's contained just within these little verses. Because Peter starts this chapter that we uh, looked at probably three weeks ago, I think now, with this concept of Blessing. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see there in verse 9, he's speaking about the Christian life and he describes it there in verse 9. He says this, Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. You see Peter's vision of the Christian life? It's blessed. Hashtag blessed. This is what he thinks it is to be a Christian. This is the good life, being a Christian, in Peter's mind. What does it mean to be blessed? It's hard to translate, but it's got this idea of of favour being upon you. It's the life, the blessed life is the envied life. It's a life to aspire to. It's the ideal life is the blessed life. And so Peter is saying the Christian has the good life. The Christian has the good life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer had the good life. He was a Christian man during World War II. He opposed the Nazi regime, ended up in jail and was executed. Before he was executed, he wrote this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. There's Bonhoeffer's version of the good life, to come and die. Doesn't sound that good, does it? It sounds more like a good death than a good life. Well, what did this blessed life look like for these early Christians? Peter is writing this letter, as we've discovered, to these Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, around 63 AD. And over the last 20 years, up until 63 AD, the Roman Empire have discovered that this Christian thing, this sect that just originally started within Judaism, which they thought was perhaps harmless, is less than harmless now. Because these Christians that align themselves within this group of people, well, their first allegiance isn't to Rome. And it's not to the empire. It's not to Caesar. Remarkably and crazily, their first allegiance is to a crucified carpenter who they worship as God. And they were so serious about this. They were serious about following this carpenter, worshipping him as God, so serious is that they were willing not to compromise their conviction, not to share in their minds who was Lord of their life. I mean, it was quite common 
in the first century for people to have a number of gods in their lives, but not for the Christians. And not at the pain of death would they give up this conviction that it was not Caesar who was running the show, but it was indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a blessed life, choosing Jesus over Caesar. Here is the blessed life. It's not in wealth, because they didn't have wealth, and even if they did, some of them have some level of wealth, probably in a year, in a year's time, under significant persecution that was to occur, they would lose that wealth. There was little safety. There was little security. They didn't have success or fame. They lived on the margins of society, but here they are living the blessed life, the good life. How does this work? Well, that's what we're going to discover. This is, I think, important for us to understand. Now, in some ways, this might be pretty irrelevant to us because in a lot of ways, being Christian, it's not that big a deal in Australia. But this this is an exception in the history of Christianity throughout the world. Stephen Neal, a historian and writer in his book, The History of Christian Mission, Missions says this, that in the first three centuries, when the church was spreading like wildfire, he says this, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Originally, these Christians, as they claimed Jesus as Lord, as they lived as Christian people, they had a lot on the line. And many of them lost their lives. And this is odd for us because we don't face the prospect of losing our life. We might face some level of hostility, say in conversation, but we don't really face serious levels of suffering. But we're the exception. We must remember that. There are Christians today who face persecution for their faith. For their faith. Uh, our brother Eab up the back there, we were just chatting. 16 Christians were killed in Egypt last weekend. To be a Christian and to be safe is an exception. It's, a, it's an exception in our world. It's an exception through the history of Christianity. So what has inspired Christians? What has given Christians the kind of life that they've lived? What has helped them see the blessing in losing their lives, losing their house, living on the margins of society? Well, it's there in chapter 3, verse 18. Peter wants to encourage these Christians. He wants to remind them just what they've gained. He says, Christ has suffered. See, you're suffering. Peter acknowledges this. We've seen this in the end of chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, the reality of their suffering is also met with Christ's suffering. But Christ hasn't simply suffered. Um, He's died. It's It's a special type of suffering there in verse 18. Because Christ has died as our saviour. And why has he died? He's died to bring us to God. Here is Peter's key piece of encouragement that the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus is this reality 
that has closed the gap between them and God. We live in a marketing world, don't we? People want to sell us something. They want to extol the benefits, the difference that it will make in our life, how much easier our life will be. We just bought a second vacuum cleaner so we don't have to carry our very working vacuum cleaner up the stairs because the kids won't vacuum if they have to carry the vacuum up the stairs. This is how we live our lives. We want the easiest path forward. And so how do you, how do you make Christianity attractive in a modern world? Especially if it's not, it's not promising here an easy life. It's promising hardship. It's not marketable, Christianity, in our modern world. But it's beyond marketing. Because there we have, in verse 18, this truth. It's a truth of what our greatest need is. Our greatest need is not a second vacuum cleaner. Our greatest need is not an easier life. Our greatest need is that our sin is dealt with that our sin is forgiven and that we are brought close to God. This is our greatest need. And this is the motivating reality in these Christians' minds. This is what Peter wants to encourage them with. He wants to show them what the death of Jesus accomplishes. And I want us just very briefly to notice four things. Firstly, that Christ died for our sins. This seems obvious, but it's worth saying that our sin is what separates us from God. The reality of sin is that we're all separated from God. There's a distance. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. See, our biggest enemy is not ourselves. Our biggest enemy is not the evil one. Our biggest enemy as human beings is our own sin. But Christ has died for sins. And so there is forgiveness for those who trust in Jesus. Secondly, Christ died as the just for the unjust. There was no man more perfect than Jesus. Even those that would uh, accuse Jesus as they were brought as Jesus brought to Pilate, Pilate himself realised that there was no guilt within this Jesus that was brought before him. But he was the one who died. The just died for us, the unjust. And so there was a swap. There was a substitution. The Lord Jesus, without sin, died in our place, such that the sin that we should bear was placed upon him, And the righteousness that he had was given to us. Christ died as the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. His death, he was utterly innocent. It was for our sins that he died. Thirdly, Christ died once for all. The nature of Jesus' death 2,000 years ago was so significant that his sacrifice paid for the sins not just of those who lived in the first century, but for all of mankind. He died once for all. It was a final, full and sufficient death to accomplish the forgiveness of sin. The debt was paid in full. Fourthly, all of this brings us to God. 
This is the great comfort of those who suffer. This is the great comfort across the world of those Christians who are suffering, who lose their possessions, who lose their house, who lose their children. This is their comfort, that their worst enemy has been defeated. Their worst enemy is not humanity. Their worst enemy is sin. And the cross of the Lord Jesus proclaims to us that their sin, our sin, has been dealt with, that we have been brought to God, that that separation has been removed. And so I think this helps us incredibly because when we are suffering, and particularly when we are suffering for the sake of our faith, I think there's a temptation for us to feel, and this is, I think the devil works in this way, to make us feel and think that God has almost forgotten about us, left us behind, perhaps in our darkest moments, forsaken us. But what Peter's saying here is that the suffering that we experience as Christian people, this is not a sign that God has abandoned us. No, suffering is the sign that God has died for us. And suffering is the sign that we are living like the Lord Jesus. Christ has carried our sin. He's absorbed God's anger at it and he's brought us safe to him and this is proclaimed in his resurrection, his victory over sin there at the very end of verse 18. And now this brings us to our, well, our really our tricky section. A tricky section there in verse 19. If you have a look there in verse 19, this is one of the most difficult sections in the New Testament to understand. Anyone uh, want to have a go at telling me what they think verse 19 might mean? Just have a bit of a go. Is anyone emphatic, absolutely convinced that they know exactly what it means? No? Does anyone want to have a guess It's something of what it might mean? Verse 19. A couple of things, just as you're thinking. Firstly, this is a very rare section in the scriptures. Um, secondly, this is not simply a riddle, like a, uh, you know, a Rubik's Cube for us to kind of figure out and then be pleased with ourselves how clever we are. Now, we need to understand what this is saying because this is an encouragement written for Christians. It's not a problem for biblical scholars to solve. It's an encouragement for Christians. And there are three main views, and I'll just go through them very briefly because I want us to understand this. And I, I, I want you to understand. I don't want you to think, oh, this is a tricky section, so I'll just let other people work it out and tell me what it means. No, this has been written for every Christian person. And so it's, it's right that you try and think about it. And so let's see if we can think about it. So it says there in verse 20 that Jesus um, went and preached to the spirits in prison who dissipated long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. One of the big questions is when is Peter talking about? When did this happen? One option that uh, a church father called Origen put forward was that this was uh, after Jesus' death, before his ascension, in between uh, that time there, Jesus went uh, to preach the gospel 
to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed Noah had been held in prison. And he perhaps was preaching his victory on the cross and the salvation in him. That's one possibility. A second possibility, one that was put forward by Augustine, another church father, says, said that Christ through the Spirit preached to those who were alive in Noah's day. If you flick back to chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see that it speaks about the Holy Spirit directing or prompting the prophets of the Old Testament. And so it could be here that Christ was at work prompting and directing through the Spirit Noah as he preached. And those who were in prison weren't kind of literally in some prison of, uh, for demons or evil spirits, but, but in the bondage of sin uh, and described as a prison in that way. And the third option is that uh, the spirits in prison there are in fact fallen angels not human beings associated with Genesis chapter 6. You can look it up uh, later in verses 1 to 4, the sons of man there. Now, for my mind, the second option, Augustine's solution, there's variations of it, make most sense. Firstly, because um, I think if we go for the first option, it begs the question, what's so special about those who are around in Noah's time? Um, That's a, a question that's hard to solve by the first solution, and I think it does make sense in the context of the book, the way in which the Spirit does prompt and, and direct those. So I would go for the second, although I think you know, there are reasons to, um, to consider seriously the first and third options. Now, that's a hard work out of the way. Why? Why is Peter writing about Noah? Why bring Noah up here? It's not Sunday school. I'm serious, these Christians are really suffering. Some of them will lose their lives. Well, I think the answer is there in verse 20 because, look, it says, those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Noah here, I think, is a picture. Is a picture of... What's happening to these Christians in the first century? It's a picture of what it is to be a Christian today. I teach kindergarten scripture, and they love the, lots of stories. They love Noah's story. And, and the way the story is told in the book that I read to them, it, it's, you know, Noah's this laughable figure because they're marooned up on stilts is this do-it-yourself boat in his backyard while all these people are mocking him wondering where his umbrella is. Because it's ridiculous that you would need a boat in the middle of the desert. You see, Noah existed in a culture that was hostile to him. But what he chose to do is trust the promises of God in the midst of a hostile culture. Can you see why Peter's employing the picture of Noah, here's what these Christians are being called to. They're being called to trust God in the middle of a hostile culture. And they're not just being called to trust God, they're being called to witness about him, about what the Lord Jesus has done. Noah testifies to what God has promised. And he'll trust in that over the mockery 
and the scorn of the majority of the population around him. And here, as the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful empires our world has ever known, as it circled around Christians in the first, second and third century, those Christian people heard these words and they chose to believe the promise of God as a minority over the scorn and the hostility of the empire. Here is an encouragement to be patient and to trust in the promises of God. And it doesn't matter if there's only eight of us. We're not a big concern here this afternoon. There's lots more gatherings that are quite um, significantly larger. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't worry me and it ought not worry you because it is no disadvantage to us to be a small, rejected minority. Because the point in verse 20 is, it says there, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Just as God rescued eight people who trusted in him, he brought them through those waters. So too we, Christian people, can trust in the promises of God. And here he connects it with baptism. Baptism is his next point there in verse 18, in verse 21, sorry. Because in verse 21, it says that those who are saved are the baptised. Now, I think it's important to understand how this is being used. Peter knows that this will be misunderstood, so that's why he qualifies it there in verse 21. This is important for us to understand. When he says, baptism now saves you, he adds not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, baptism, the sacrament of baptism, the sign and symbol of of baptism is a spiritual and inward appeal to God for cleansing. Because baptism is, is a way of saying something. It's a way of declaring in a visual reality as we baptise a little baby, as we de- baptise adults. Well, there's adults up here that have been baptised in this church. We're going to baptise a baby, um, hopefully in January next year, an eight-year-old as well very soon. As we baptise Those in Christ, we're saying something. We're saying that in the death of Jesus, that person's sins have been drowned. Their sins have been put to death. And we're saying that God will bring this person through death. God will bring this person through death to everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ And the act of water as it's poured over a person, that's not what saves them. What saves them is the reality of faith that stands behind that symbol. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. And so how does this strengthen suffering Christians? How does it strengthen us? Well, when we come through the water of baptism, when we witness someone else's baptism, we see someone pass through death and judgment. We see those who have been buried with Christ and who have risen with him, who have passed from death to life. Judgment is past. See, in Noah's time, what did the waters represent? They represented the reality of judgment. What do we do when we baptise a little baby? We say that judgment, judgment is now behind them. Judgment is behind them and salvation is before them.
And so we who trust in Christ, we who share in this symbol of witnessing baptism, of experiencing it ourselves, we know that there's no condemnation for us. We've already died. We've already died and our life is now hid with Christ. And this is where Peter ends us. He ends us that if Christ has died for our sin, if he has been raised, then there is no power, no Roman Empire, no vocal minority in our community or throughout this world that can, that can, uh, that can bring about suffering outside of God's control. Have a look there in verse 22 as we finish. He is at the right hand. This is the Lord Jesus of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. See what Peter is saying? Yes, these Christians will face suffering. But they need to know this, that no harassing, no oppressing, no deceiving, no accusing demon is free to harass, accuse and oppress, to do as he pleases. Because, Peter says, in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, all angels, all powers, all authorities, all devils, all evil spirits, Satan himself are subject to the Lord Jesus. When Peter ends this letter, he says that the evil one is like, is like a lion prowling. And so Christians are to resist him and to stand firm in their faith. And this is their faith. This is the faith that Peter had in mind, that all angels, authorities and powers are subject to Jesus. This is what it is to resist the devil. It's to know that Jesus has died for our sin, that there's no condemnation, no matter what you might hear in your own mind, no matter what you might hear from other people. There is no condemnation. There is forgiveness for you in the Lord Jesus. And the evil one will try. He'll try directly to you. He'll try through the cause of others. But you need to know that Jesus reigns at God's right hand, that he, the devil, is under Jesus' control, that he does nothing without Jesus' permission, that the devil's a dog on a chain, that he cannot touch you unless the Lord Jesus wills it. And when he wills it, and when we suffer, that's for our good. And it will be for Christ's glory. Amen. Please stand as we...